The book of Revelation contains a great deal of violent imagery for a book that's centered around hope. And that might strike us as strange because we assume that hope comes without conflict. We don't see a connection between bloodshed and judgment and destruction and hope. But conflict avoidance leads to false peace, which is really just killing hope in slow motion. And telling the truth will often bring conflict. Truth removes peace in order to establish hope, true hope. Now, Christ came not to bring peace, but a sword. He brings a sword of truth, the word of God that divides households and cuts hearts. Repentance is a painful thing. Repentance itself is a conflict. It's a changing. It's a turning of one's mind. But first, you must be faced with your own sin. And the conflict between your new self and your old self of sin is the war that rages in the heart of every Christian. And it's a war that wages between the church and the world, between God and Satan. And Revelation chapter 8 depicts in symbolic language how Christ removes peace causes conflict, and ultimately brings true hope through his word. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation chapter 8 begins with the opening of the seventh seal. Up until this point, Christ, the risen lamb, has ascended to the right hand of the Father as the only one worthy of breaking the seven seals on a scroll. That's Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And then Revelation chapter 6, he breaks open the first six seals before pausing to mark out a symbolic 144,000 Jewish martyrs who are going to give their lives for Christ in the near future. Now, again, the perspective we're taking is that the majority of Revelation describes in symbolic terms the age between Pentecost, between the ascension of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit, and the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70. And as we also mentioned in prior episodes, the number seven symbolizes fullness. But rather than getting God's full judgment, the seventh seal breaks open and gives us seven more judgments in the form of seven angels blowing seven trumpets. Why is this? Well, Revelation works kind of like waves on the shore. The first wave goes forth and then recedes, only to come back stronger and higher up onto the shore. Revelation chapter 8 expands on the red rider of the second seal, who took peace from the land by showing the conflict between the church, Israel, and Rome, and ultimately the battle between God and Satan. So if you view it, the first wave is God opens the, the, the first six seals, and the second rider is a red rider who takes peace from the land, and the seven trumpets is expanding on that theme, zooming in and bringing God's judgments closer to the final judgment, but not quite yet. So the seventh seal opens up and seven more judgments inch us closer toward the climax of the destruction of Jerusalem. So let's look at these verses going verse by verse through chapter eight. Revelation chapter eight, verses one through five. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it down on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Revelation chapter 8 opens with a half hour of silence, which often precedes God's act of judgment in the Old Testament. So you can look at Zechariah chapter 2 verse 13 or Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 20. The fact that this silence lasts only a half hour indicates that the following trumpet judgments are partial and incomplete. It's not the final judgment. It's not the fullness of God's judgment, but it is a partial judgment meant to provoke sinners to repentance. So we see these seven angels and they have seven trumpets and they stand before God. And then another angel with a golden censer, which is this device that carries incense, offers an incense along with the prayers of God. You can kind of imagine the prayers going up in this kind of smoke up to the nostrils of God. Now in Revelation chapter 6, we see that there are a group of martyrs crying out for vengeance from the base of a heavenly altar. I think here we're seeing those cries ascend with the incense to God's throne. And then God's throne rumbles with thunder, lightning, and earthquake, which is language that you see at Mount Sinai when the Israelites came out of slavery from Egypt and they went to the burning mountain and they saw it covered with the glory of God. God is about to bring his full justice, but he delays it until the 144,000 sealed martyrs give their lives. That's what we learned. So he says, I will avenge you, but not yet. There's still a number of martyrs that need to die before I bring my full judgment on Jerusalem. And yet God brings this partial judgment as a provisional answer to their prayers. In other words, God's wrath does not conflict with his love, but it actually manifests his love as a destructive force against evil. Earthly prayers bring heavenly fire as seven angels blow their seven trumpets. Let's look at the next section of verses in verses 6 through 13. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water, because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. The first four trumpets target elements of creation. The first trumpet upon a third of the earth, trees, and all of the green grass. The second on a third of the sea. The third trumpet on a third of rivers and springs of water. And the fourth on a third of the sun, moon, and stars. Now God created the world in Genesis 1. But he also set that world according to a particular order. And the order of creation sets a pattern for the order of humanity. God's disruption of the created elements also disrupts its order, which ripples down into the political order of Israel and Rome. 
so heaven forms a pattern for the earth. Now remember, Revelation is not primarily about the end of the world, but the end of a world, the old covenant order of Israel. But the trumpets only affect a third of the created elements, which means that they function only as a foretaste of Jerusalem's final judgment. This is only an appetizer. There's a, it's a light shaking before, before the final shaking that God is going to bring. But he's starting to unravel the old, quote-unquote, created order of the old covenant system of Judaism. Now, now that we've laid out the pattern, we can get to some of the particulars. The first trumpet brings hail and fire mixed with blood, and it burns up a third of the earth, the trees, and all of the green grass. I think this symbolizes the conflict between the church and Israel. Hail, fire, and blood echo God's seventh plague on Egypt in Exodus chapter 9, and the cry of Israel for Christ's blood to be on their heads in Matthew 27, 25. So Israel now plays the part of Egypt, persecuting God's people, rejecting Christ, the greater Moses, and now receiving God's wrath. And the hail, fire, and blood is simply what comes back on the heads of the Israelites who called for the crucifixion of Christ. We also need to pay attention to the details. Once again, the hail, fire, and blood only affect a third of the land, so it's a partial judgment, but it doesn't attack the people, but rather it attacks the things that provide for people. The earth, which can be translated land, which I think is a better translation, the land and the trees and all the green grass. And these are three elements that we see in the creation narrative, earth and land and trees and grass is kind of assumed in that narrative. They provide food, they provide provision, they provide shelter. And Israel is going to experience a kind of partial famine of God's blessing and provision for their unfaithfulness, but there's still an opportunity to repent. I'm not quite sure why all the grass is destroyed. That's kind of a strange thing, but it does seem like God is symbolically saying in affecting the things that give life, he's saying, I'm going to remove my life-giving blessing from you, from Israel because of your unfaithfulness, but there's still an opportunity to repent. It's only a partial famine and a partial judgment. There's time to turn things around. The second trumpet casts a flaming mountain into the sea, turning a third of it into blood and destroying a third of both sea creatures and ships. And this symbolizes the alliance of Israel and Rome against the church. The flaming mountain represents Mount Sinai on fire with God's presence, hearkening back to, again, that post-Exodus experience of Moses and Israel in the wilderness. And the mountain is also the foundation of the temple. The temple was built on a mountain. And so I think these two represent Israel. Israel is the Mount Sinai on fire, built upon the mountain, which the temple is. And the sea in the Old Testament represents the Gentiles. So this flaming mountain, the Israelites are now crashing into the Gentiles, joining the Gentiles. So Christ offends Israel, who enlists the unlikely accomplice of Rome, think about Pontius Pilate, to shed Christ's blood. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. I think that principle is operating here. And we're going to see that later on being developed with the false prophet, which I'm going to interpret as Israel's corrupt priesthood, allying with the beast of Rome. And those two forces join together as a kind of false Jewish-Gentile alliance against the church. But more on that in later chapters. But I think, again, this is about the Sea of the Gentiles now joining with the mountain, the burning mountain of the Israelites as an alliance against Christ. Roman power is going to persecute the church, placing the blood of martyrs now on the hands of the Gentiles. Remember, Pontius Pilate says, look, if you want to crucify Jesus, I'm going to wash my hands clean of this. His blood's not on me, it's on you. Well, 
once this alliance happens between Rome and Israel, the blood's going to now be on that Gentile nation of the Roman Empire, and they too are going to feel the weight of Christ's judgment. The blood of the martyrs will be on Rome as well, especially when we see what the beast does, and, and I think that actually foretells the Emperor Nero's persecution of the Christians, which is one of the first widespread persecutions of Christians in church history. Now let's look at the third trumpet. The third trumpet sounds, and a burning star called Wormwood crashes into a third of the rivers and springs and turns their water bitter. Now three symbols come into play. First, stars. Stars in the Old Testament represent people. Second, the act of falling from heaven occurs two other times in Revelation, and in both times they refer to Satan or a satanic figure. Third, Wormwood in the Old Testament refers to the bitter fruit of false teaching. You can read Amos chapter 6 verse 12 or Deuteronomy 29 verse 18. False teaching is spoken of as bitter to the taste. It, it poisons things. So Satan is poisoning the springs of water that ought to give life with the bitterness of false teaching. Okay, so Satan or a satanic figure is this wormwood star and he's going to the sources of life, the rivers and the springs. And he's taking them and he's polluting them. So seas are unruly. The sea is a place of judgment, but rivers and springs are places of provision. And these life-giving sources are now tainted by this poisonous false teaching, this poisonous error. You can think about the Nicolaitans and Jezebel in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This false teaching springing up within the church. The church is supposed to be a source of life where the spirit dwells, where true teaching comes, but Satan attacks by infiltrating within the church. And I think this is, again, talking about internal conflicts within the church, the, the well being poisoned, the place where life's supposed to come is now infected by false teaching. And Judaizers and people who are leading people into sexual morality, all those things happening from within the church are being spoken of here. And behind them is a satanic force trying to corrupt the church and lead people astray. And the word of God is what comes in and divides and exposes churches so that the truth might win out over lies. That's one of the jobs of pastors. They bring the pure truth of the word of God and it divides. It creates conflict. It exposes the false teachers and liars and the corrupt people and it casts them out. So there is going to be conflict within the church, but again, conflict avoidance can often kill a church. It is when you have the good kind of conflict, where the word of God cuts, and it reveals the poisoned wells, and it cleanses the sources of life within the church, that you can have true hope. And this is the conflict that's going to emerge. Christ's word exposes false teaching, which creates conflict, which must happen if the church is to be preserved. Finally, the fourth trumpet. The fourth trumpet darkens a third of the sun, moon, and stars. Now, this refers to the conflict between God, Israel, and Rome. So remember, the first trumpet is the conflict between the church and Israel. The second one is the alliance of Rome and Israel against the church. The third one is the conflicts within the church against false teaching. And this fourth one now is God taking on both Israel and Rome in their political structure. Now, like we said before, heaven maps onto the earth. In Genesis 1, the sun, moon, and stars, they don't just hang out in the sky. But God says that they govern the day and night. They're rulers. And those heavenly rulers parallel to our earthly rulers. We even call today people who are really important. We call them stars, right? This, these heavenly bodies are, are mapping on symbolically to earthly realities. So if those heavenly bodies are shaken, what does that mean? 
That means the earthly bodies are going to be shaken. He's using creation language to symbolically depict the sun, moon, and stars of political orders and powers being displaced. And we see that when God judges Babylon. When God judges other nations, he uses sun, moon, and star language. So it's not talking about the dissolution of the physical world, but he's using physical elements as a symbolic depiction of political chaos and disruption. God gives a partial shaking of the political order. It's only the third of the sun, moon, and stars. So the gospel comes out and it doesn't destroy Rome, but it certainly shakes things up. You can see in the book of Acts, it even disrupts people's pagan economy. It's causing a ruckus all over the place, but the full shaking has not yet come. But there's an unsettling. And there's an unsettling of the Jewish order, the religious order, the temple order. The gospel is disruptive. And what you're going to start to see is that disruption continues to increase as the church grows. And so I think John is saying this is part of the plan. God is disrupting the old order through the gospel. And it's just a precursor of the final toppling of the order when the, when the temple is destroyed. So an eagle appears suddenly and cries out three woes that correspond to the final three trumpets. So this little interlude is saying these first four are affecting the created order. They're not yet affecting actual people, but these last three trumpets are going to affect people, the people who dwell on the land, the people in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. So these judgments are, are going to intensify. These are judgments of woe. These are more serious judgments. Now, God's judgments don't come at once. And I've mentioned this before. God is not trigger happy. He's actually very patient. He's giving waves of judgment so that people will repent, that people will come to their senses. That itself is a grace. The fact that God keeps nations alive despite all of their evil and injustice and blasphemy of his name is his kindness. He is kind waiting for people to repent. But as we're going to see in the next chapter, very few people, sadly, take that opportunity. And in fact, God's judgment seems to harden hearts. So where is the hope in that? Well, come back next week and we're going to show you in Revelation chapter 9.